Hello, and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. This is Mike McShane, Director of National Research at EdChoice, and welcome to another monthly installment of our Tracker podcast, where we discuss the results of our monthly survey of Americans that we conduct in conjunction with Morning Consult. A little bit about this poll, it was in the field from October 12th to October 16th, 2021. We polled 2,200 members of the general population of the United States, which included an oversample of school parents that the, we put in an extra 700 school parents. So in total, there were over 1,100 school parents polled this month. Now, to discuss these findings, of which there were many interesting ones, I am joined by my colleague, Drew Catt, who many of you will be familiar with from his many appearances on this and other EdChoice-branded podcasts. But we have a special guest this week, Holly Grant, who we've met through various EdChoice events that we've had, and we think that she's a star, and it's her time to make her debut on an EdChoice podcast. She is going to be joining us, schooling us, informing us, telling us her opinions about these things. So Holly, welcome to the podcast. Um, and I wonder if maybe we could start with, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Mike. That's such a nice introduction. I, like many parents in March 2020, was scrambling to find schooling options for my three children. And their private school tried to transition to virtual learning, but being a Montessori school, that wasn't really aligned with the philosophy. So, you know, juggling a newborn and just <laughs> spending a lot of time at home with my children at the time was great, but clearly not something that could, we could keep up forever. So when the public schools did not reopen, but their private Montessori school did reopen, we started looking at ways to continue the private school education that we had for them and not to put them back in the public schools. And that's when I really found Ed Choice, looking at how I could stay at home with the newborn and also have them in private school while our public schools were still closed. So, you know, that led me here to you all. It's been great getting to know everybody. Yes. Yeah, it's been great getting to know you as well. And I would love to know a bit of your background, sort of prior to March of 2020. Yeah, <laughs> what, sure. what were you doing? What were you up to? Life existed before that. So I was a former high school public school teacher for a high school in New Jersey. I taught mathematics. And then I got a PhD in mathematics. And I was a university professor for about two years until I went on maternity leave and then kind of a continued leave since then. So. so what you're saying is that if Drew and I somehow mangle our numbers, you will be the first to call us out on it. I don't Drew, think so. I don't think consider, so. <laughs> consider I yourself warned. <laughs> I, I would never do anything like that. I, uh, I would never do that. Well, that's a-okay. Yeah. Well, look, let's dive into this. You know, so one of these questions we have been asking for months is a very simple question to school parents based on what you have seen, read, or heard about the coronavirus outbreak so far. How comfortable are you with your child returning to school this year? And it's been generally a kind of there was a downtick and then a slow kind of uptick over the months with a little bit of a dip sort of at the beginning of this school year. But we saw from October, again, these results are from mid October, but from September to October, we saw if we combine the groups that are not comfortable, so 
some that say that they're not that comfortable or not at all comfortable. That was down two points from September to October. And those who said that they were comfortable was up five points. So the spread now, 68% of parents polled said that they were comfortable with their children going back to school. 30% said that they were uncomfortable. And I would just love, you know, you've been doing uh, a lot of these events. You're around other parents, parent activists, you know, in parent communities. Does that kind of meet the vibe that you've experienced? Or when, when you look at those numbers, what do you think? Well, I mean, right away, I have a couple of questions. I think how many of the parents had their kids in school full time, you know, since the pandemic started? See, this is the mathematician in you. You yeah, see numbers <laughs> and immediately start questioning. questioning see, them. I just look yeah. at them and think of like what take can come off the top of my head. So this would be, so this is a poll of all parents. So this could be a mix of parents whose children are in public schools or in public charter schools, private schools, homeschooled, right. et cetera. Yeah. Are the don't knows still sending their kids to school? Very good question that I don't know if we know the answer to. Because, I mean, not that it changes much of the outcome of what the percentages are saying, but, you know, and what's tied to them being comfortable sending their kids to school? Is it that that more vaccines are available now? Is it that, you know, there are mask mandates? Is it that we have other methods of mitigating the virus? Is it that they don't think the virus is a threat at all? You know, those are sort of my <laughs> I don't know if I can answer your question directly. Well, I'm just wondering, <laughs> just from kind of people that you talk to, yeah. do you think it is some of those? So do you think like when folks have said, oh, you know, now the vaccines are rolling out for younger kids, or it's just that, I don't know, that they that they, they say, oh, we don't think that our kids are necessarily at great risk for it, yeah. or well, that they know, think I mean, that their school is perfect. doing a good job. Yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking like, uh, you know, universally here. So yeah, I, don't, I, don't, don't, you don't have to explain American public opinion. Um. <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Okay. Yeah. So in my, in, in what I've seen and just my personal experience, I would say that I think this is pretty accurate representation. I just worry about those that are uncomfortable sending their kids to school, but are still required to. Totally. By the state, so I I am empathetic, you know, to their situation cer certainly. No, totally, and I mean, you know, that's something that we've been seeing, I think, throughout the course of the pandemic, where you've had people on both sides of this, right? So you had families who were comfortable but were unable to send their kids to school, and then you had families who were uncomfortable but felt forced to having to send their kids to school. So obviously, this is a place of of tension and conflict. And speaking of tension and conflict. You know, so Drew, we asked these series of questions about us, any number of hot button topics in, in education right now, but but related to kind of coronavirus mitigation. So we've asked these questions about obviously two topics lots of people are talking about, which is masks and vaccines. And so we've asked this question now that a vaccine is available. Do you think it should be mandatory or encouraged for the following groups? And we ask, should masking be mandatory for the following groups? or should vaccines be mandatory? And we gave them the options of mandatory, encouraged, but not mandatory, and neither encouraged nor mandatory. And we asked about teachers, professors, students, employees, older students, younger students. And Drew, one of the things, and I think I pointed this out on social media last week, and it seemed to me like one of the reasons that these fights 
have been so vicious in so many places is because like when you look at the mandatory numbers, you know, for for teachers, right? 53% of people think that masks should be mandatory and 50% think that vaccines should be mandatory. And so obviously the inverse of that is that you know, 50% don't think that it, that vaccines should be mandatory. So we see this just like split down the middle on that. So, you know, two big, evenly sized groups of people on either side of these debates. But when you look at these numbers and, and, and they're oddly kind of, they're, they're reasonably consistent, sort of what people think about masks is also what they think about vaccines, which isn't necessarily intuitive, but maybe it is. I don't know. I'm just kind of spinning around on these things. But Drew, when you look at all these numbers, what do you see? Thanks, Mike. I think there's an interesting connection to the previous question as well. Um, having done some of the some of the dives into why parents are saying comfortable or, or uncomfortable, they're the same two things that we're talking about right now. Parents that say they feel comfortable say they feel comfortable because of masks and vaccines. Parents that say they're uncomfortable sending their child to school is because of masks and vaccines. So it's really fascinating talking about those two groups. The one group who says, like, I only want my child to go to school if everyone's being masked. Versus the other group of parents that say, and you know, like being generally broad, breaking people down into two groups when in fact we're all very unique individuals. But the other group of parents saying, I don't want my kid to wear a mask and my kid's not going to go to school if he has to wear a mask. So I think we're kind of seeing the same kind of shift in some ways when we're talking about whether vaccines and masks should be mandatory, encouraged, or neither encouraged nor mandatory. And it's really fascinating to think, you know, from somebody who's dove into the regulations the schools have to uh, live up to by the various states that they are in, how many various vaccinations are already required of students? And I'm I'm really curious, and we maybe we can have a talk with Morning Consult at some point. It would be fascinating to put the COVID vaccine, basically put all vaccines that are currently mandated by any state and the COVID vaccine, and then gauge based on that. Because I wonder if it's just this vaccine specifically or vaccines in general. It's just something that I've been kind of uh, ruminating on over the last few weeks. Is it pure vaccine hesitancy or is it COVID vaccine hesitancy? No, that's a really interesting one, too. And and I think that we're seeing, you know, in some of these, we do ask a question about mass and vaccines broken down by age groups. So we talk about children age 12 and over or, you know, 12 and under based on these things, I think sort of mostly because of the, you know, that the vaccines were recently approved for five to 11 year olds. But I always wonder because in so many school districts and places where they've set sort of blanket policies, it's tough. The polling questions are tough because I think a lot of people are experiencing them just like the baseline is whatever their district is doing. You know, I'm joining this call from the Republic of Ireland where they've had different policies over the course of the last couple of years, generally working very hard to keep schools open, even if that involved closing other things. But one of their big decisions that they've made around masks, basically around anything related to the coronavirus, is like 12 years old is like the magic age, where if you're older than 12, things apply to you. So in schools, that's where kids are wearing masks. That's where all, you know, if you're in shops or whatever, that's where people have to wear masks. But under 12, they just don't. And so it's easier here because there's only two. There's primary schools, which is like K through six. And then there's secondary schools, which is like seven through 12. So it's like secondary schools have stuff that students have to do. But primary schools are basically kind of going on as normal. And I wonder the degree to which that sort of diffused things where it was like people were stressed out about little kids wearing masks, but they didn't necessarily care about ninth or 10th graders doing it. But because districts were setting 
entirely district-wide policies, you're treating a ninth grader and a second grader the same way. Again, it's it's tough because I don't know of many counterfactuals, again, other than like across country lines where there's a lot of other stuff going on there. But But I also wonder with that, like if that could have been something that would have changed people's opinions if there was a little bit more. But again, it sort of ties into what we've been talking about on this podcast throughout this is these kind of uniform one size fits all solutions to more nuanced situations that require a little bit more fine tuning perhaps. But you know, another thing talking about something that can't necessarily be as fine tuned. We've been asking this question. We we just started asking it, I think two months ago about quarantining in the percentage of parents who've had to quarantine their children. And so we asked this question in the past month, have any of your students, any of your children had to quarantine because of a COVID-19 outbreak. And this was a kind of interesting spread this month because amongst all parents, 26% said at least one of their children has had to quarantine in the last month, which is wild. If you think about 25% of American school children, that's a lot of kids taking, I think, usually two weeks for, for what that is. But it was much higher amongst private school parents than district school parents. So private school parents, 41% had had at least one of their children quarantine, while only 24% of district school parents. So again, Holly, I mean, I'm sort of interested, have you been noticing these quarantines? Did they kind of roll through somewhere and then and then people have to figure it out and, and what the impact of that's been? Certainly. So I have four children, Mike. So quarantining for us at our school, there's not been one like two week quarantine in the private school that my kids are in. We've had about, I think my daughter had three days until she was waiting a COVID test. Like she had symptoms and had to have a COVID test, but then once it was negative, she was allowed to go back to school. So uh, like, is that what people are considering a quarantine? You know, because if that's what people are considering a quarantine, then I would say that number 41% is, seems pretty high for the number of people that are actually quarantining. Of my four children's (laughs) classes, none of their classmates have had to quarantine. So that that to me, yeah, seems really pretty high. And so Um, what is the, do you know what like the quarantining policy is for the school? Like what triggers a quarantine? A positive, I get, I mean, I guess a positive case is what you're considering a quarantine, like the full two week. That's what would trigger one in the school. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what in ours would trigger one, but I don't even know now the policies are changing so quickly and what is having to happen at that. I mean, they're registered with the state as an independent school. So with things changing as quickly as they do, I don't even know if now the whole class has quarantine. I think just the student does. So that number 41% seems high to me in the private school sector, but that's my only based on my experience with my four children. Well, but I mean, like, as you yeah. brought up, which I think is important, it's just like from state to state or district to district or county to yeah. county or school to right. school, like it could all be different, right? So one school yeah. that says, you know, every kid in the class, if there's a positive test, every kid in the classroom has to quarantine or everyone has to wait until they're tested before they come back, or it's like only the kids in the immediate vicinity or whatever. I mean, I think lots and lots of different things have been developed over it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah and I think it definitely varies state to state and, and even district to district. Like here in central Indiana, I have a sister-in-law that teaches uh, elementary school, the next county South, and she's had to completely quarantine her entire classroom twice. 
because the district does not require masks versus the public high school that my wife teaches at the next county north. They realized first week of school, like, hey, if we require masks, students can be close to each other and we don't have to quarantine them. So then they rolled out a mask policy. And since they have the mask policy, they don't have to quarantine as much as they were that first week of school because the like distance requirements completely change whether or not a student is masked or not and whether they have to quarantine. So even that little nuance is really fascinating, like combining what we were talking about previously with whether or not masks are required and the impact that that may or may not have on whether or not students have to quarantine is really interesting. Yeah, and Drew, I'll jump in. That too, you know, of the percentage of the private school parents, right? So, you know, mine are in an elementary school where vaccination has not yet, I mean, it just within the last two weeks has been available for students ages five to 11. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, are the students that are going to a private school, are they mostly younger students? Are they older students where vaccinations have already been available? Are they not vaccinating? And now even the definition of vaccination is changing. So I don't know. I would add, are you double vaccinated? Do you have a single dose? It's hard to unpack that 41% of private school parents are quarantined. I I don't know. Yes. Well, it remains to be seen. And we're going to continue asking this question. It'll It'll be interesting, too, to we'll get the numbers. What's cool about these polls that we've been doing, because we do it every month, we introduce new questions. And at first, we have to do a lot of this kind of grasping in the dark where we don't know exactly what's happening. And and then over time, it starts to level out. And so it's interesting, too, because there was another one of these questions we've been asking where we ask parents where their children attended school last year and then where they will be attending school this year. And Drew, you and I were talking about this even before the podcast started, because I think of all of this month's sort of figures, Morning Consult put together this really interesting kind of flow chart where you can see all the people, what they said the year before and what they said this year. And I think, you know, as far as changes goes, obviously most people stay in whatever they were doing last year. But one of the things that stands out in the chart for me this month is a big flow from homeschooling into public district schools. So while 19% of families said that they homeschooled last year, by this year, it's down to 9%. And that, it looks like the bulk of that 10% went back into district schools. Is that what you saw, Drew? And can you help me make sense of that? Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, just the the huge bump that we saw in homeschooling kind of this past spring, and really, really the the shift that happened And, you know, as we've talked before, Mike, like there's always the question of what do parents actually mean by homeschooling? Having schooling happen at home versus actually physically schooling them themselves with their own curriculum. But even if like you pull up from, so I went back and looked at the October 2020 report for Morning Consult. And so basically from pre-COVID to COVID, it was a 7% saying homeschool shifted to Uh, a little over 16%, so pretty close to that 19 that we have. And it seemed at that point in time that there was a sizable shift from the public district sector to homeschooling. And yes, there was also a shift from private schools and charter schools as well. But it seems, based on what we're looking at here, that there's less of 
the students going back from homeschooling at home to public charter school or private school. And it seems like, yes, there is the flow back to the public district schools. But the fact that we're still seeing a significant percentage that are staying homeschooled. So I'm kind of wondering if once parents are kind of exposed to this as an option and they see how their children are, you know, and a lot of things that I've heard, a lot of students are thriving being homeschooled students. I mean, personally, I enjoyed my time being a homeschooled student and really pushed myself academically. But yeah, I'm just wondering how many parents are kind of getting the taste for the choice, seeing how their students are doing and just sticking with it because they see that that's what they deem to be the best fit for their student. So another question we just started asking recently was about delaying kindergarten enrollment because we'd heard a lot about you know, students kind of, quote unquote, missing students for the last year, that if you looked at public school enrollments or school enrollments in general before the coronavirus pandemic and after, there just seemed to be a couple million kids that were missing. And at least an initial explanation from lots of school districts and others was, oh, they're just kindergartners. It's people who just delayed enrolling their students. And I don't doubt that that's actually a large percentage of it. I think there's probably a bit more to that story. But it's interesting. So we decide this is what's awesome about being able to put a national poll in the field every month. We said, all right, cool, let's ask a question. So we asked the question, did you delay enrollment of kindergarten for any of your children and why? And so we found that around 10% of school parents say that they have delayed enrollment for kindergarten for their children. Then we asked them why. The most common answer was that their child would have been too young for their grade, which is about 29% of respondents. But interestingly, number two was the coronavirus pandemic, about 28% of that 10% of folks who said that they've done it, fully a quarter said that it was the coronavirus pandemic. And then the other ones kind of go down the line, not emotionally ready, not socially ready, et cetera. So Holly, when you look at those numbers, and I don't know if you know folks who've delayed kindergarten enrollment, I know that's obviously something a lot of parents are thinking about. So I just love to know your reaction to that. So I think it's interesting because prior to the pandemic, like it was never a consideration for people holding their children back in kindergarten either. This is obviously a once in a lifetime, hopefully once in a lifetime sort of event. And so that almost 30% of the people who held their kids back from kindergarten from going to school is the same as, you know, that their child are too young for the grade or, I mean, pretty close to they're not emotionally ready for kindergarten. For sure. You know, I think that it is a real consideration for why people were either, maybe that's what they were considering going back to the last slide. Maybe that's why they were considering homeschooling or they're among the group of people that were homeschooling that held them back and now are sending them to the public school for kindergarten, you know? So maybe that explains that flow, Drew, in the last statistic talking about, I don't know if 30% of 10% is enough to, you know, change that number, but you know, it's a consideration that parents didn't have prior to 2020. So I think it's important. Yeah. Health, health is obviously emerging as a reason for people keeping their kids at home. Totally. Well, speaking of another thing that sort of emerged during this pandemic pods. So we've been asking this question, obviously we've been very interested in understanding pandemic pods and, and what's going on in those. And once we kind of got some more information about people participating in pods, one of the things that we asked is how much would parents be willing to spend on a monthly basis to participate in a pod? And Drew, it looks like this month, 
The answer is $380, which is up about 20 bucks a month from September. So when you look at that or any of the breakdowns, what do you see? Yeah, thanks, Mike. That's this is really interesting, and especially with the max of a thousand versus the minimum of zero. And that, as you said, that $20 shift. Part of it to me is what, again, like the, the loose definitions and kind of learning about this stuff as it happens is what do parents think of when they think of a learning pod? I talked to some parents that they thought a pod was, you know, when their student was working remotely at home on the district school stuff and they got together with other parents and all the kids did their work at one person's house instead of working on the work at their own houses. Well, now things have shifted a little bit and you don't have as many hybrid schedules for the district schools. So I really do wonder how much of this is the kind of the, the pure learning pot of getting students together with a single teacher and having them teach them the content and curriculum, which if you're talking about that, 380 bucks a month is a steal compared right? to what you'd be paying for a full private school curriculum or what the district would be paying, you know, their teachers. Well, honestly, it's the better deal for teachers and the pods over time, if you think about it. But we'll not get into the bureaucracies of the system yeah, right now. Right. But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting what we see with the income breakouts, the shake out. Oh, you make more money. You're willing to pay more money. That's something that's fairly intuitive. But also, I think some of the regional breakouts are interesting as well. Just seeing the shift from the West to the Northeast and those in the Northeast are willing to pay a little more, which, you know, that really doesn't surprise me as much because if you look at private school costs, private schools in the Northeast are typically a little bit more than the rest of the nation. So it may honestly just shake out as any demographer may kind of hypothesize looking at it in terms of like the percentages. So Mike and Drew, when I look at this, my immediate response is, wow, what a bargain. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that parents are willing to put, you know, a dollar amount on the amount of money that they are willing to spend on education. And in fact, when you look at the income levels, between really low income families and really high income families, the difference is not much. Low For sure. That is not a lot of money between what low income families, the difference between what high income and low income families are willing to spend on education is, I mean, almost the same. That's huge to me. $380. People put that number on their educate. This is what we're going to spend monthly per kid, you know, and that's not a lot of money. What is that's, I mean, a homeschool curriculum. I'm not familiar with how much a homeschool curriculum costs, but I mean, and what I pay for private tuition or what people are paying for property taxes, that that's, you know, people have put a number, you know, on it. And that to me is important to know. Sure. Yeah, 380 times. So, I mean, if we imagine a 12 month school year, it's about 4,500 bucks, 4,560. Now, again, you know, I, I look at that number and I think, well, I get that you're willing to spend that, but you have to have someone on the other side of that who is willing to be paid that. And, and you have to kind of you multiply that. You think of how many kids would have to be in a pod before it becomes worthwhile for, for a teacher if they're doing it full time. But but yeah, so lots of things to be worked out there. But I think you're right, Holly. It is cool. And it's been interesting to see that kind of we've watched these numbers over the last couple of months kind of fluctuate in different directions. And it seems like as, as 
situations in schools get more dire, that number goes up. And as things sort of level off, that number okay, starts okay. to go down. But we'll, yeah, right, right. We'll keep watching. But look, there was another thing. So, so we asked this question too, and there's, you know, there's federal legislation that was debated over the the last few months about a variety of topics and infrastructure and all of these things. So we've asked both all adults in our sample as well as school parents, how helpful do you think each of the following will be in helping students? And it's sort of when we ask all adults, we say helping students. When we ask school parents, we say your children next year following the the COVID uh, pandemic. And interestingly, so the top of the list is, well, it's interesting because there's a bit of a, a spread. So for parents, the big stuff is individualized learning plans, providing all students with high-speed internet, and giving all students laptops or tablets. For all adults, offering after-school tutoring is the top of the list, then the individualized learning plans, then high-speed internet, and um, offering counseling or mental health support. So I'm just wondering, both looking at like the Holly, looking at both the national numbers and those things, do any of those stand out to you? So if you had resources of your state and district at your disposal, are there some of those things on the list that you you would say, I think this is where this is where we should be spending money or in other ones where you're like, ah, that doesn't seem like we'd get the bang for the buck? Right, right. Well, I mean, 68% of people want a customized education, like, you know, in terms of individualized learning plans, and they want their children to have, you know, access to computers to be maybe to be able to do that. I mean, so... I mean, how are you going to, how is, I, I'm losing my words here because that's shocking to me, you know, that to actually see that number is large. I mean, and the other one that stands out to me is the mental health support for students and staff. Does that mean that the schools should be where you're getting your mental health care? And is that okay? I mean, I think very good question. The schools are like a lot of children in, are having mental health issues because of where they are in school, learning disabilities, anxiety, test anxiety, bullying, you know, those sorts of things are causing the mental distress. And if the place you're going to get the care is also the place that's causing you the problem, like I, I can see why people would want individualized learning plans for their students and a tablet so they can do their work at home, <laughs> not be in the place for sure, causing them mental health. So the numbers here to me almost seem to make sense in terms of that. But to answer your second question, what do we have in place, you know, in terms of infrastructure and, you know, what we're able to do in the schools, I, that's a whole nother policy and another conversation, I think, should the health and the care be in the same place as the instruction where you're getting your instruction? That's a different. <laughs> totally. That's no, different absolutely. Question, I think, you know, do you change the school? Do you change the people at the school? That's, I can see what, you know, why it's so complex. I think there's also something interesting when doing that comparison between all adults and school parents. Uh, where, you, yes, as you talked about, Holly, like that huge discrepancy between all adults and school parents when it came to individualized learning plans. The other two big gaps kind of make a little more sense to me with the providing all students with high speed Internet and providing all students with laptops or tablets that the parents would have higher percentages there because the parents are the ones that are having to deal with a slow Internet connection with multiple people on the same, you know, same Internet and having to deal with having to 
let their student borrow their computer because there's only one computer in the household. So, I, yeah, I do wonder if that is that those parental experiences over the last year and a half are driving those gaps for those two. But, yeah, like you said and pointed out, the individualized learning plans that, you know, more than two out of three parents thinking that that would be extremely or very helpful is uh, great to hear and great to see. Yeah, so as we kind of bring this to a close, I want to close on two questions that we've asked. Well, it's, I should say it's really the same question, but we've split it out between two different audiences. Again, there's been lots of debate recently in politics and in the broader society about schools and what schools should be doing and what schools should be teaching or not teaching or how it should be taught. And so, again, when we have the opportunity to ask questions to the nation, we go ahead and do that. So rather than I mean, listen, we'll still develop opinions that are unmoored from facts, but at least we'll also put the facts out there. So we'll kind of keep the equilibrium balanced in the world. But so we ask this question, what do you think should be the main purpose of education and split out between K through eight parents and nine through 12 parents, parents of kids in grades K through eight and parents of kids in grades nine through 12. And I actually thought these numbers were really interesting. So for K through eight, the most popular, the one that said we allowed people to say extremely important, very important, somewhat important, not that important, not at all important. And we sort of, you know, rank order them. And again, this is all available on the website. Morning Consult put out this sort of lovely graph for us. So if we take the people who said extremely important and very important, the number one answer for K-8 parents is core academic subjects. And it's something like 87% of parents said that that is either very or extremely important. Next is to become independent thinkers. And then it sort of goes on from there. And for 9 through 12 parents, the most popular with 86% is skills for future employment, then to become independent thinkers, then core academic subjects. So it's interesting, the top three are the same in both, but the orders are slightly different. And I will say that the bottom two are the same as well, with values, moral character, or religious virtues coming in second to last, and to fix social problems coming in last in both of these cases. So I'd be kind of interested in how both of you look at those numbers it doesn't really surprise me, the idea that in K through eight, the most important thing people say is core academic subjects. I'm a little bit surprised that nine through 12 is skills for future employment. I imagine that would be popular. I didn't realize it would be that popular. And honestly, given all of the hubbub, I'm a little bit surprised that to fix social problems is like dead last in both of them. But in both of them, it's 10 last. So, I mean, maybe, Drew, I'll have you go first, and then we'll give Holly kind of the last word on this as our guest. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It, it is really interesting. You know, I'm sitting here with the PowerPoint slides going back and forth between the two to see what the differences are. And really, it is, it's a complete swap between skills for future employment and core academic subjects with becoming independent thinkers being the that second one for both top threes. Yeah, it really is, really is fascinating when we think about what is the purpose of high school. And yeah, especially, you know, if you think about the history of education and the K-8 classroom versus, okay, let's add on a high school now because we got to add all these skills so students can be employed and go on to college, which, you know, I don't mean to be little or anything. It's a wonderful, noble thing that has happened in our country. I wonder how much if we also included something for the high school group about, you know, how important is it to go to college? Like how, 
how that may change things. If we actually added something in there specific to college or technical school or trade school or anything about continuing education beyond K-12 experience, what that may shift with things, because I wonder how much is the like less so on the core academic subjects and more the skills for future employment is also including skills for college success. Like a lot of high schools now have classes specific to career and college readiness. So I wonder how much of that is already ingrained in that skills for future employment versus how much of it is, you know, like, oh, I'm like, I remember in high school, like, oh, here's how you do an interview. Here's how you create a resume. And like that was meaningful and everything. But I feel like the the more meaningful things for me and the trajectory that I had for my life were the ones that better prepared me for college, which there again, I learned here's how to do an interview. Here's how to do a resume. So I really want to know what that split out would be if we asked the high school parents and all adults when thinking about high school, the importance of continuing education beyond. For sure. Absolutely. Holly, what do you think when you yeah, see those? Drew, I had the same immediate thought that you did about what are the goals of the students who are in high school, because it seems to me a case where the goals, like the alignment is off a little bit, right? If it's saying that the high school is there to help with skills for future employment, but everybody's sending their kids to college, that seems like, you know, the goals are almost not aligned there. So I would be interested too in in the thoughts on higher education from that same group that says high school is for learning skills for future employment. Are they discouraging their children from going to college? Are they not going to send them to college? You know, if they're going to college, why do we care about employability in high school? You know, I, I can understand employability if if you are, you know, in a technical school or a vocational school. Obviously, they're thinking about, you know, the next stage of their life in terms of maybe not going or delaying, you know, college, which, you know, the demographic of the college student is certainly different now than it was you know, a while back, there's parents going back to school, military veterans. So like the particular student in higher education has changed as well. So that I wanted to piggyback off of Drew and say that was really surprising to me as well. But then in uh, the kindergarten to grade eight education poll, you know, it makes sense to me that skills for future employment are not as high as academic core subjects, but maybe not further down the line, like <laughs> that it's number three out of, you know, that are there. I think skills for future employment in K through eight, you know, that one surprised me that it's so high up there still, because thinking back to when I was in kindergarten, there was no such thing as a Bitcoin miner or a... <laughs> a web developer or anything along those lines. So trying to imagine in the future what jobs our K to eight students are going to have, you know, and then also I wanted to make one comment about, you know, are we swapping moral character and employability? It seems to me that values, moral character and becoming good citizens would be higher up. So what is that saying about, you know, our culture, that things are not switched around a little bit, but, you know, 
maybe next month it'll be different. This is the beauty of it. You just ended this with the teaser for next month's podcast. So for all of you waiting with bated breath for us to sort this out, you got to come back one month from now and we'll talk about it. Well, Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. This was wonderful. Drew, a pleasure as always. Always got to give a shout out to Jacob Vinson, our podcast producer, who's going to make us all sound coherent. God bless him. And thanks to everybody who is listening. And I look forward to chatting with all of you again on another edition of Ed Choice Chats.